I'm going to ask you to turn with me this morning in the Word of God to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And our passage for examination this morning as we continue on in this series in this great book of Acts will be verses 21 through 41. Would you stand with me now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? At verse 21, now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. But at that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis be regarded as worthless. And she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of Ephesus! The city was filled with the confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companion from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. So the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since Jews had put him forward, and having no uh, motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great! is Artemis of the Ephesians. And after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know the city of the Ephesians as guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash You've brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. If you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there's no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly meeting. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. You may be seated. I trust this morning that the scene before us in our text is somewhat vivid, even as it is somewhat dramatic, as you see this testimony of a raucous crowd gathered together in the marketplace to protest. We know something of that from our own experience, as it seems that every time we turn on the TV, someone's resisting. 
And they got me thinking about it. If uh, CNN was around back then, you can almost imagine how they would have been reporting it. There would have been helicopters hovering above the crowds, uh, taking uh, vast panoramic shots of the throngs of, of the protesters commenting on the size of the crowd. There would be uh, live coverage from the mosh pit of the mobs as reporters wanted to get first-hand information about what the people on the ground were saying and the feel of it all. And then there would have been the candid interviews of people questioning them why they were there, what it meant for them to be protesting and resisting. And then, uh, predictably, in the print media, there would be the headline the next day, large crowds rally to support Artemis. And if indeed that's how they would have covered it, and I think that's probably what they would have done, is it would be a classic example of what's called burying the lead. A classic example of what is called burying the lead, that is um, making matters of secondary importance look like they're the headline, and then later on, the things which were primary eventually uh, at least get mentioned. You see, if you take this narrative here, with which is on the surface of it, a, a fairly lengthy, vivid description of a raucous assembly and revolt against Paul and Christ, and you invert the paradigm or the narrative and begin to look at what's underneath it, you begin to see a buried lead. Because this text primarily is not about the revolt of the crowds. This text primarily is about the transformation of thought and life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's see if we can work there for a moment. Imagine uh, the day in which this uh, rabbi showed up to Ephesus with a, a Bible under one arm and his tool belt in the other. And no one noticed. And when he went to the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue for three months, no one noticed. And when he transferred uh, the Christians over to the lecture hall of Tyrannus to expound the Word of God daily in the siesta hours of the afternoon, no one noticed. But then, all of a sudden, subtle changes began to occur as the Word of God began to stream out from that lecture hall into the homes of the inhabitants of the city of Ephesus. And, and then that same message began to be the topic of discussion at the local Starbucks and the coffee shop. And from there, one person told another so that it not only spread throughout the city of Ephesus, but it did, as the Word of God tells us, spread throughout all of Asia. And as that happened, something else happened. The foot traffic at the local temple of Artemis was less than it used to be. The demand for the paraphernalia of idolatry had dried up. The cash flow from all of the business which attended, and it was a massive amount of business that attended the temple and the worship of Artemis, evaporated. And in just the span of a couple of years, through the ministry of this little Jewish rabbi converted to Christ, an entire city was transformed. And you're going to see the outline of transformation, economic, social, and religious. You begin to think about that. You begin to think about what happened here, you easily recognize that the story is not the vast crowd gathered in an amphitheater shouting for hours at a time, shaking their fists at a perceived injustice. The story here is what happens when the gospel takes up residence in a place. It changes people's minds. And when it changes people's minds, it transforms how they live. It is precisely on account of the transformation of life of the believers that the city of Ephesus experienced this massive transition 
from the city which was the servant of Artemis to a city which was now the servant of Christ. Changed minds and hearts led to changed lives. And that's precisely what happens when the gospel takes up residence at a place. And I want to think about that this morning under two parts. The transformation of the gospel, and then second of all, the gospel which transforms. There are two distinct points. So when we think about the transformation of the gospel, what we want to be thinking here about is what did the gospel cause? What did the gospel cause? And it's quite obvious to us from the testimony of Demetrius that this gospel caused three kinds of change, economic, social, and religious. And so we'll think through each of those in turn. So let's think, first of all, of the economic a transformation, and we'll pick up the testimony of the text here at verse 23, where it says, About that time, about that time, there occurred no small disturbance. And it's at least important for us to consider the temporal indicator here in the text at that time. And I think you need to look back to verse 21, and you can see from there the time frame that is referred to. Because there you see that Paul had purposed in his heart to go, or in his spirit, to go to Jerusalem. There's also another time indicator there too, if you'll notice, after these things. And I think that's also important to consider because it means that it's after the things which were just described in the text before us. That shocking set of miraculous events which eventually led to what? the Word of God growing and prevailing. As the very believers who'd been one to Jesus Christ were led to repentance of sin for serving the dark arts and magic, you're told that the Word of God began to grow mightily and prevail. And the result is that after two and a half years of ministry in the city of Ephesus, the Word of God tells you in verse 10 that the Word had spread through um, Ephesus and all of Asia, and then it returns again to the notion of a spreading, growing, thriving Word in verse 20. But you see, it's after those things here that the text tells you Paul decided it was time to push away from Ephesus. His work had been completed and he intended to go to Jerusalem to visit his church plants and then eventually go to Rome. It's after that now that you see uh, the summary of the narrative of events that happens beginning at verse 23. And you get a summary line of it all. At that time there occurred no small disturbance according to the way. Here Luke is telling us that there was a public commotion there was public rioting, there was upheaval, there was civic drama, if you will. And the drama was pertaining to the way. Now, we have to understand that the church is being spoken of here, but it is an indicator to us that is of something is, is of some uh, what interest that, that Luke still does not call these believers Christians. He doesn't even refer to it as the church. He calls it the way. This is how Luke has been describing uh, Christians and disciples of Christ going all the way back to Acts chapter 2. Uh, for whatever reason, this term, the way, and some think it a derisive term, a way that outsiders mocked Christians and spoke of them. But whatever the source and origin of it is, when we hear that the disturbance was on account of the way, we are to understand that the disturbance was on account of Christ, the disturbance was on account of the gospel, and the disturbance was on account of the church. And now we work our way into the testimony of that disturbance, and it begins with this man named Demetrius, who are introduced to in verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. The beginning of this public controversy starts in the local union hall. I don't know if there was one large enough to accommodate the 
the union of the carpenters and the electrician and the and the tin knockers and all of those people, but somehow, some way, there was a large union hall, and this man Demetrius must have had some sort of prominence among them, and we discern that he did because it says he brought no little business to them. Which would explain why all these people are gathered there to listen to him. You tend to be worried about things that people who pay your check are worried about. And so who is Demetrius? We don't know. It's a sort of common Greek name, so we can't gain much from that. We do know something about him from his trade. He was a silversmith. We're told here what he applied his skills and abilities to. He made um, trinkets, if you will. He made souvenirs. He made little Artemises, if you will. He made little replicas of Artemis and replicas of the temple, and he was in the high-end part of it because he was dealing in making them out of silver. We actually do have remains of of Artemis um, and these sort of souvenirs and trinkets which were made out of ceramics would have been much cheaper. So obviously this is a man who has been dedicated to his craft and he's gotten quite wealthy because his clientele is wealthy. And so he gathers the people together and he begins to tell them about a problem. Notice verse 25. And he gathered together the workmen of similar trades and he said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this Business. Notice here, the first thing that he brings up is an economic concern. The first thing that is on the heart of Demetrius as he considers the downfall of the religion of Artemis and Ephesus is not a concern for religious devotion or the spiritual piety of the residents of Ephesus. He is not concerned with the corruption of public morals. The very first concern, the thing that drives him into that hall and to assemble all of these craftsmen is that their checkbook is being affected by Christ and the gospel. And we know that because the language here is the language of economy. You have the notion here of business. And in this sense, it's not business in the sense of a business being a shop. But it's a business in the sense of their trade. And the thing is, he says, this trade of ours, this skillful stuff we do with our hands out of raw material, this sculpting of, of the goddess and all of the paraphernalia of her worship, this business of religion is our wealth. That's what the word means. This is our wealth. This is our prosperity. This is your comfortable life. This is your, uh, your two-story house and your, and your four-car garage. This is your children's um, savings for college. This was about money. And you see, what had grabbed the attention of Demetrius was that as the gospel began to, to make its way through Ephesus and the surrounding region, as Paul preached daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, is that people were changing. And the indicator of that change was how they spent their money. And the very first tangible impact that Demetrius can trace to the gospel is they're not buying our stuff. And therefore... We're getting poor. So the first indicator that the gospel is taking up root in a particular place as the word is being faithfully preached, as it begins to captivate hearts and minds and change lives as it affects the economy of a place. And then the second thing you'll notice as you move forward into verse 27 is that it causes social transformation, as you can see here in the opening words. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute. Now he's speaking about their livelihoods, not just their livelihoods though, but their social standing, because the language of disrepute is the language of how people are judging and evaluating something. And it seems uh, from the language here, the implication is that if someone was a craftsman who made religious objects, they were regarded as people of significance. 
perhaps because they were assisting in, in religious devotion. But also I think we can conclude that another reason why uh, they were revered is because they were doing well in life. They were doing well in life. And we all seem to know in our society too that one way that you can tell whether somebody's decent is if they have a nice place. If they have a lot of money, if they have a tidy existence, we all tend to think and associate that with morality. They must be decent people. They must be good people. They must be people worthy of respect and some level of admiration. That's what he's getting to here. The life that being makers of idolatrous objects led to was a life of being revered by others because it was good economics, it made them wealthy, and that wealth thing seemed to be the stamp of approval upon their life by the gods. And yet, as people stop buying these things, as the cash dries up, as fewer and fewer people inhabit the halls of the temple of Artemis, something begins to dawn on Demetrius. Social transformation is occurring. We're no longer those who the people around us look up to and revere. We are falling into disrepute. Now, as you read on to verse 27, you can see that he aims at, he's really getting at the religious transformation. But, but I think this is important for us to notice that when the gospel takes up residence in a place, it, it changes the economy, it unleashes social transformation. And by the way, if you want to just take that theme up and, and take that little thread and trace it out throughout the New Testament era unto the subsequent centuries, surely that's the case with Christianity. It did absolutely revolutionize the social world of antiquity and had massively important practical uh, ramifications in all kinds of ways socially. But we get now to what he's really burdened by, the religious transformation, and we'll read about it here in verse 27. Not only will their trade fall into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And there's two things here that are important for us. And the first is a change of mind about a religion is occurring. A change of mind about religion is occurring, and we can start with this idea of regarding the temple of Artemis as worthless. We think, first of all, the temple. And this temple was truly a glorious facility. We've said it before, it was situated about a mile and a half outside of town. It wasn't inside the city. The temple was larger than a modern-day football field. Its ceiling, 60 foot high, was propped up by 127 columns. And though it wasn't in the city, it's, it cast a, a large and powerful shadow across the entire place because that temple was the lifeblood and the identity of Ephesus. You can capture some of that in your imagination here in the very thing that the town clerk says to the, uh, the rabble, the mob gathered there in the amphitheater in verse 37. He says, uh, or rather in verse 35, he says, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian of the temple, great Artemis, and of the image which fell down from the heavens? There's a lot that's being said here, but one of the things that the town clerk is saying to appease and to mollify and to quiet the, uh, the rioting crowds is this. Your identity here as Ephesians is that you are the administrators and the keepers of the temple of Artemis. You are no small people. And the reason why it was regarded as this great and high and holy calling is because of a rock. You see, uh, verse 35, it's translated an image. But the best translation is meteorite. And the most literal translation is a rock from Zeus. 
You see, he's referring to a legend that there was some sort of thing that fell out of the sky, which was interpreted as a gift from Zeus and somehow represented the worship of Artemis. And the very fact that it fell out of sky there in Ephesus was a way of justifying that the city of Ephesus was blessed. Artemis was choosing to make that her place. She was sanctifying the city, if you will, and for that reason they built this enormous temple there as an expression and a token of their adoration for her. And here is the thing now that seems to be unthinkable in view of all of that as you come back into verse 27. She will be, or the temple, will be regarded as worthless. Notice the accent upon the mind. Regarded. The verb speaks of thinking. It's about the intellect. It's cerebral. And the thing that Demetrius is concerned about is that people's minds are changing. When they heard that the Apostle Paul said that gods made with hands are no gods, Demetrius is saying, this is the intellectual revolution that's going to kill our business. But not just our business, this is the intellectual revolution which will unseat the religion of Artemis. And so you see here, concerns for religion begin with a brand new change of mind and way of thinking about what religion was. And what would have been unthinkable to any average ordinary citizen of Ephesus before Paul walked into the city with a Bible under one arm and a tool belt under the other was that this could all go away. We've mentioned it before that the temple of Artemis was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This massive temple with all of its columns, its architecture, its beauty, its sculptures, and its painting was something that people would board a ship for. And that wasn't too safe in the ancient world. They would board a ship to risk life and limb and cash to see this magnificent wonder. It was unthinkable that such a place as that temple would be regarded as worthless. And yet, the complaint of Demetrius is that people's minds are changing about religion. The other thing that indicates a change of mind here is a change of mind about majesty, particularly the majesty of Artemis, says, verse 27 says, and that she, whom all of Asia and the world worship, will be dethroned from her magnificence. By the way, we might note that the worship of Artemis was indeed widespread. Archaeologists have covered, uncovered over 30 different worship locations stretching from Spain on one end of the Mediterranean to, uh, to Syria to the other. That's a large following. Her worship reached up into the upper echelons of the Roman Empire. Uh, archaeologists have found a coin that on one side of it has the image of the emperor Claudius and his wife stamped upon it, and on the other side of it, an image of Artemis, indicating that the worship of Artemis, and by the way, that coin was commissioned for their wedding, which tells you that the very worship of Artemis had reached into the very upper echelons of the political establishment, meaning it's a part of the powerhouse of the ancient world. And yet, what does he say here? That the magnificence of Artemis would be dethroned. And you know, uh, that's quite a statement to make about Artemis. Because you know what Artemis comes from? The word Artemis, which means safe and sound. You see why people worshipped her? She made them feel safe and sound. She appealed to the felt needs of people. You think about what people are concerned about today. 
They're worried about their own safety as they commute to work. They're worried about uh, if they have enough money in their bank account. They're worried about whether they're going to be healthy. They're worried about whether um, their relationships go well. You can think down the line of people's felt needs today, and I'll guarantee you that Artemis was thought to meet every single one of those needs. We know that from the things which were said about her. We know that from the sculptures that remain. One of the sculptures that remains is of Artemis is uh, of, uh, of the, the chest being covered with um, these things that look like bulbs, and scholars don't know whether those are bodily parts or whether uh, they represent fruit. But either way, they say it represents fertility. Uh, she had strange, scary-looking animals emblazoned upon her skirt, which indicated superiority and power over nature. Do you know what hung around her neck? Was the sign of the zodiac, meaning she had the powers to manipulate the forces which seemed to control reality. Artemis, safe and sound. What I'm struck by, though, this morning, people of God, is that with them believing all of those things and thinking that she adequately met their needs, how in the world did the gospel take root? If the Apostle Paul was merely offering uh, that Jesus could supply all that Artemis did, I don't understand how that accounts for how people shifted and reoriented their entire life from the worship of this goddess who generations had revered across the world. Well, we know that that's not how Paul won their minds. Because the Word of God tells us what he did. He reasoned and persuaded from the Word of God. You see, the way that the Gospel gained a footing in Ephesus and stole converts from Artemis was not by Paul offering a Christ who could provide more than Artemis could in the terms of felt needs. Christ exercised his saving power through the preached gospel through this message that Jesus Christ is a Savior from sin. And the result of it is changed conceptions of Artemis to the point that Demetrius now is concerned that she will be dethroned from her magnificence. By the way, we might add that the titles which were used to refer to her speak of her magnificence. She was called Queen of the Cosmos. She was called the Heavenly Goddess. She had great names and great titles and a great following. And yet Demetrius says, a man preaching a message that God's made with no hands are no gods at all and led them in repentance from idolatry to the living and the true God changed this city. That is the transformation that the gospel caused. And this morning, people of God, as we think about that by way of application before we go on to our next point to see the gospel which caused the transformation, I think we should at least pause for a moment and just simply take in and notice here the transformative power of the gospel to bring real change. I mean, one of the things that Luke wants to tell us through the very way he narrates the story is that there was real transformation which came to Ephesus. After all, those crowds would not be in the streets if that wasn't happening. If they hadn't really lost their income and their wealth and their social prestige and their standing, if the traffic in the temple halls of Artemis wasn't lasting, they wouldn't be there. It was real change. Reminds us this morning, people of God, that is the power of the gospel. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 10.4, The weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Artemis was a fortress. Not just because of the massive size of the facility, 
But Artemis and her worship was a fortress. It looked so powerful and so strong that no one would have ever have conceived it would have been dethroned through words. And yet, Demetrius, from the lips of a pagan opposed to Jesus Christ, could explain how the gospel was dethroning a fortress. We think about that this morning for our own encouragement. Obviously, we don't have our problem with the worship of Artemis today. But we do have our problem with the worship that everything Artemis promised she could offer. Things haven't changed. If you think back over the things that Artemis offered to provide you, control over the forces of nature, power over the things that might hurt you, prosperity for your bank account, and health and happiness for your marriage, that's what everybody offers today. I don't think it's changed. We just have different names for it. Science. Socialism. Relativism. Materialism. And sometimes if we look at those very honestly, I think that we would have to admit that we do get concerned. Can the gospel really change anybody's life? These isms have become so embedded in the fabric of our culture and people look at them and trust in them and confer almost divine status upon them to the point that we wonder, can anybody's mind be changed away from them? We remind ourselves this morning of what Paul said. Our weapons are divinely powerful through the tearing down of strongholds. And the strongholds of today and the strongholds of the past are fundamentally and essentially the same. Christ's power is still exalted over the power of men. We are to be encouraged this morning, people of God, that the gospel will prevail. It will not fail because it's not the weaponry of flesh and blood, but it is the weaponry weaponry of divine empowerment. Well, the gospel caused transformation. Let's think now about the gospel which transformed this city of Ephesus. And I want to take this in two different ways because I think it's really uh, a part of our passage here. And, and the first thing I want to take this is negatively. Negatively, I want you to look with me at verse 37. And uh, the message the town clerk proclaims to the gathered crowds. For you have bought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. Here we are learning about the way the city has changed, at least in a negative way, right? And one of the negative things that is said here by the town clerk is that the change has not come because they were robbers of temples. Now, when you hear that language, it may sound a little strange at the outset, but when you consider that temples were the uh, ancient form of banks, it makes sense. Remember, the complaint that Demetrius brings against Paul and the way and these Christians is that it's drying up their cash flow. It's changing the entire economy. They're losing their checking accounts. And so uh, the town clerk addresses this at least at one level when he says, I can testify to you, and he can do this certainly because as a town clerk, he was also the town treasurer. And he said, they're not robbers of temples. The balance sheet are still the same. In other words, one of the things that he is saying is they haven't come and brought change through coercion. They have not manipulated. They haven't stolen. They haven't deceived. They haven't defrauded. This gospel change can't be accounted for through deception. And then he also adds here that they're not even blasphemers of our goddess. This is remarkable after all. Remember that the apostle is summarized as saying, God's made without hands or no gods at all. But here the town clerk who would be in the position of being in the know says they haven't overtly or directly attacked Artemis. In other words, they haven't come in here and beaten people down with the stupidity of their paganism. They haven't been harsh with their words. They haven't been defamatory. They haven't reviled. They haven't been mean-spirited in the way they said what they said. 
They may have talked in principle about things, but they didn't, um, they didn't speak negatively, overtly against Artemis. That tells us something about how the gospel does work. It's not a coercive power, is it? The gospel is not a manipulative and coercive power. When I think about that, I think of that great statement of Jesus that everybody loves so much as He says, Come unto Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. You see, this is the Christian message. This is the summary of not only the substance of the message, but the manner of the message. Who would possibly be offended by that in a sense when you think about it? You who are weary and heavy laden, let me take that off your back. You who are worn down and exhausted, you who are crushed under the load of legalism, you who are burdened by the wages of false religion, you who are those who've tasted the bitter emptiness of your false ideology, come to me and I'll give you rest. That is a a message that is not coercive and manipulative. It's a persuasive message to be sure, but it's a message which speaks to the need of the human heart above everything else. I'll give you rest. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. I will be gracious. You see, when the gospel comes and tears down strongholds of power and fortresses, it does it, ironically, with the gentleness of Jesus Christ. It wasn't a negative message. Positively, it was a persuasive message. And that brings us back into verse 26. And this is the testimony of a person that didn't believe the gospel, but at least seemed to know enough about it to summarize it, or at least a part of it. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying, Gods made with hands are no gods at all. You know, I don't know if your translation has this, but I start with that word, turn away. You know, some translations have uh, lead away or deceive, because that's literally what the word means. But I I think what's happening here is this is sort of Demetrius reframing this word because remember that uh, at the core of the message which Paul preached was the call to repent, which means change your mind. And uh, almost an identical word is used here, but it means something else, which means to lead away or to mislead. So he's just reframed what was said. But, but obviously a part of the message here was this verbal message, a persuasive message. Turn away from what you're doing. And the other thing that we think of here when we think about the very way in which uh, Paul changed them was he persuaded them. We can go back to uh, previous portions here in our chapter and note the, the times here that Luke describes Paul's preaching as persuasive. And what that means is not that he sought to grab a hold of the, of the arm and twist it behind your back and make you say uncle like your older brother used to do. That's not persuasion. No, persuasion, when it's proper, uh, properly understood, is the notion that once the mind has been informed, now I'm moving the will with information, with reason, with things that you've heard. You say, yes, that sounds true. But it's not just leaving truth in the mind. It's, it's using the truth to move you to the logical conclusion of it. Now, apply that to the message that is proclaimed here. Gods made with hands are no gods at all. Who would be in a better place to affirm that than a craftsman who made images of a god? You see, Paul furnished them with the truth. 
And the truth that he proclaimed was utterly self-evident. That a God made with human hands, a God made with the thoughts of a human mind, is no God at all. This is the polemic of the Old Testament. Again and again, we read of it in the Psalms and the prophets, how they would speak disparagingly and mockingly of the whole entire intellectual foundation of idolatry. And it begins with the idea of the guy going to his tool shed and grabbing an axe and taking it out to the forest and chopping down a tree. And then bringing it back to his, uh, bringing it back to his garage and sanding it down and smoothing it out and shaping it into an image and then covering it over with precious metals. And a God has been formed. You see, he proclaimed the truth to them. It was something that resonated in their own thinking. But Paul didn't leave it there. He said, you have to turn away from these ideas. You have to turn away from this empty way of thinking, and it needs to impact your life. And so the persuasive message which Paul brought to them was not just to explain the truth of idolatry, that it's really emptiness. It's intellectual vacuity. There's nothing to it. He led them to not only understand that with their minds, but then to persuade them to turn away from it unto Christ. You see, there was a persuasive means that was Paul used words, and there was a persuasive message. You already know this is true. Now come listen to this message about Jesus. You see, the gospel didn't uh, take Ephesus by storm because it coerced and manipulated and appealed to people's emotions and fears. It brought this great change of life, changing the way people thought. As we uh, bring our message to conclusion then this morning, I I hope we take a part of this word here and uh, put our hands on it for a moment to see what it implies for us how it's to work out in our life. And again, the heart of the message of this text, again, is not the crowds and the people shouting in the marketplace and the amphitheater and being out of control and angry. The message of the text here is what happened or the cause of why all that happened, which is the gospel had been preached so clearly and articulately and persuasively that people's minds had been changed and the result of that was society changed. You see, the heart of Luke's narrative here, especially as it's fashioned out of the mouth of Demetrius, his real change occurred. Economic, social, religious. And you could say this morning, a a part of the reason for the change was the message, and there's no doubt about that. The message really was profound and powerful and true. But the other part of the change, which is key, is what happened the people of God began to live like Christians. That when people heard that message and they believed that message, the key is that they changed their life. They changed the way they had been living. And when that change occurred in their minds and spilled out into their lives, it changed the city around them. So an illustration of this in our text last week as we noticed how that through the miracles and the sons of Sceva uh, attempting to replicate those miracles and then uh, showing themselves and exposing themselves as frauds that it turned out that the people of God who had still been harboring their magic books and uh, practicing a little magic on the side began to repent. They brought out the books and they burned them. And the result of all of that was that there was a massive spiritual revival that took place among the people of God. And that revival must have been so powerful that this whole thing, this transformation, this revolution of the city of Ephesus occurred. They had left behind the past and they had put on Christ and His truth. And the result was... Through changed minds came changed lives, and through changed lives was a changed city. What is the application of our text this morning, people of God? It's precisely the same for us. Changed minds need to lead to changed lives. 
so there's real transformation around us too. You know, I'm struck by how the Apostle Paul, at the end of um, the book of Romans, he spent 12, or rather 11 long chapters expounding the gospel. And finally, when he pivots away from expounding the gospel uh, to move to apply the ethical admonitions of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm struck by the fact that the very first thing that he addressed after laying out the gospel with such clarity was the first thing that he addressed was the mind of the believer. The very first thing that he addressed was the mind of the believer. As he said to the Christians, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because what Paul understood is that the entry point for change is right there with how we think. The entry point to real change in our life and change that spills out from us and radiates out from us as we let the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shine through us. The entry point of change is our mind. And so this morning, people of God, you should ask yourself, what's in your mind? What's in your mind? What thoughts control your life? What ideas control how you feel and how you think and how you live? The interesting thing about creatures, this is exactly what's always at the root of what we do is our thoughts. We may not always be fully self-conscious of them as we are, but if you peel it back after a while and you talk to people about what's on their mind, you'll begin to see a connection between what's on their mind and what's in their life. And so when we hear about great transformation happening in the city of Ephesus, and we see how the changed minds of the, Corinth, of the Ephesians led to changed lives, which spilled out into a culture and changed the city, it's an admonition to us this morning, people of God, to see what's in our mind. What are you thinking? What controls how you are? The Apostle said to believers of all shapes and sizes, ages and seasons of life and levels of maturity, this is the call of the gospel. Be transformed in the renewing of your mind. And as that happens, as the true gospel works its way through us and changes our thoughts and then into our behaviors, and we'll be able to be what Jesus Christ calls us to be, which is uh, that great light for Christ. And as we're that, the Father will see to it that that will be a means of glorifying Himself as He leads people to see His Christ. Father, we uh, pray this morning that You would <clears throat> help us to receive a message from, uh, from long ago, a message about Jesus Christ and His conquest of a city that was a fortress a fortress against Christ and His kingdom. And um, it happened through very simple ways, uh, through the simple message of the gospel, through the simple message of telling people what they already knew. Gods made with hands aren't any gods at all. Lord, help us uh, uh, to hear that call this morning of the mental renewal of the gospel, to make sure that our thoughts are shaped by the Word of God alone, that they're constantly being uh, redeemed and renewed and sanctified by the truth of Your Word. And as that happens, O oh Lord, we pray that uh, those thoughts would be transferred from our minds to our hands, and that the very way we live would be a means of exalting Christ uh, for the good of His kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.